Good morning, everybody. What a delight it is to be gathered together in the Lord's house today, to gather together as God's people, as brothers and sisters, to set our hearts and minds towards the living God and to praise Him and to be loved by Him and to love Him in return. Very, very warm welcome to all of you. If there are any visitors among us, a special welcome to you. Special welcome to Dr. Colin and his family. It's great to have you with us from the Gideons. We look forward to hearing from Colin in a second. I did just want to say thanks to the elders and Carlo, Ejimar, and Jeff for covering while I was away. Had a most blessed time of refreshment. However, I do truthfully say it is far more blessed to return than to go away. Uh, it is a great delight for our family to be back. It's, it's nice to visit other churches, but there's no place like home. Uh, it's great to see different people and catch up with old friends, but there's just nothing like putting your feet up at home and relaxing among your own family, among your brothers and sisters, and so it creates great delight for me to see you all today. We do have the pleasure of, as I said, having Colin here, who's uh, works with Gideons and has been given the opportunity today to come and share with us about their work. So I welcome you, Dr. Colin, to come up. Thank you, brother. Well, it's great to be here again. Indeed, um, I've got the wrong thing here, so I'm going to have to speak off the cuff. Oh, there you go. <clears throat> you don't know what I'm going to say, do you? Well, any of you been approached by a bikey gang? Hey, any of you been approached by a bikey gang? You know, these ones with the, with the big leather jackets and things? Well, we got approached, the Gideons, by a bikey gang called the Redeemed. And they wanted some Bibles to give out to people because they were witnessing to people. And so they, they asked us if we could give them some New Testaments. <clears throat> And actually, the bikey gang actually happened to be in Rangiora. Well, what was happening in Rangiora? That's just north of Christchurch. Well, that's where six couples joined together to, to establish a brand new Gideon camp. And the national chairman was actually on his way to um, Rangiora when he got this call. So when he got there, he was speaking to these people. And one of the guys, was his name was Tony. Now, Tony, he looked like he'd had a hard life covered in tattoos. And he said how when he was 30 years old, his wife was having a baby, their first child. And their first, the doctors came out and they said, look, I'm very sorry, but it looked, she may not make it. And even the baby might not make it. It's really serious. I'm just warning you that this is not good. And he didn't know what to say. He paced up and down in the hospital and Anyway, he looked out at the hills in the distance and he just cried out to God. He said, God, if you look after my wife and this baby and you keep them healthy, I will serve you for the rest of my life. At eight o'clock in the morning, the doctor came in and said, I don't know what happened. We thought we were losing her, but now she looks well and healthy. Come in. Come and see the baby and see your wife. He, they, he walked in, and there she was in the bed with the baby. And the first thing she did was she put her arm out and picked up a Gideon Bible. And she said to him, you need to read this. Anyway, 
he started to read this and he loved it. He'd read it before he went to work. After he came home from work, he said, Since that day, I have not stopped following Jesus. Praise be to his name. We, don't, we have got no idea how God saves people. But he does it, and he is continuing to reach out to people that are hurting and lost and confused. You know, I've just spoken recently to three different principals of high schools in Auckland here. Two in South Auckland, one in East Auckland. And all three of them said that they are seeing young people that are confused, that are messed up, that are, some are even suicidal. And he was saying, they each said, I hope these little books saves a life. Even if one life is saved, what you are doing is worthwhile. That's what they said to me. I didn't even have to ask them. Anyway, <clears throat> praise the Lord. You know, this last month, the Gideons here in South Auckland, there's only a little group of us, I'm going to ask them to stand very shortly because they have been to nine different high schools in South Auckland and given out more than 3,000 New Testaments to young people in this area. You know, I'm from South Auckland, you know, South Side, bro, you know. <laughs> Rewa Hard, you know. But, you know, there are a lot of young people that never set foot in a church. Never set foot. You know, I was at McLean's College. I don't know if I told you a young girl walked out from McLean's College and I said, here's a New Testament. She said, what's a New Testament? And I said, oh, it's a Bible. She said, what's a Bible? I said, oh, it tells you all about God. She said, what's God? I said, well, you better have one then. Oh, okay. And off she walks. God has got the doors open for young people to receive a copy of his word. Also, this week, you know, it was orientation week for the universities. But we only had two local Gideons go to MIT. There was only two people available. So they only were able to give out 200 of these New Testaments each day. If we had four or five people, we could have given out four or five hundred. So please consider being part of this ministry. But <clears throat> more important than anything is to pray. Pray that God would use these New Testaments to save souls. People that have got no idea, that never set foot in a church, can be reached because of the, what the ministry of the Gideons is able to do. We're able to go into hotels, hospitals, prisons, but the vast majority of the scriptures that are distributed in New Zealand go to high schools. It's an exciting time to be part of the ministry of the Gideons. God laid it on my heart that we should be expanding our ministry in New Zealand. So, in the last couple of years, two years, we've only ordered 35,000 scriptures through the COVID times. But last year, in December, we got 60,000 scriptures coming to New Zealand. So praise the Lord. They have arrived. They've gone out into the community. Now we need hands and feet to take them to people in the community. To go, you know, a lady came into my 
GP clinic here in Manurewa and said, can I leave a Bible in your waiting room? That's how I became a, Christian, uh, a Gideon. She just walked in and said, oh, can I leave a Bible there? And I said, how much is that? And she said, no, we do this for free. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I'd be interested in that, you know. But anyway, <coughs> we, we so pray that God would use his word to save souls. That it, and as I said, um, we hope to give out 60,000 scriptures this year. Now, 60,000, that costs a lot of money. And we had to pay the freight to get it here. That was $24,000 to bring a 40-foot container of Bibles to New Zealand. So if we pray and we ask churches to give to, for the scriptures, because this is God's word and his ministry. And anyway, Gideon's never started off giving up Bibles. That We started off in 1899, a group of businessmen just wanting to encourage each other in their walk with the Lord and in their personal testimony and witness. It wasn't until nine years later that a Presbyterian church in the USA said, can you, if we pay for some Bibles, can you put them in the hotels? It was a church that asked us to put the hotels in the Bible, uh, in, put the Bibles in the hotels. And the church funded it. So praise God that God's people have enabled this ministry to grow all around the world. There are now 300,000 Gideons. But one of the joys that I saw last year, and this is amazing because I was just walking to church and I saw a young boy walking to church and he had one of these in his hand. And he was a, looked like a Fijian boy. And I pulled out my little New Testament and I saw the most beautiful smile that I've ever seen. The joy on his heart that he held up a little New Testament as he was walking to church. <clears throat> and I'm, it just thrilled me to see that our God is an amazing God and continuing to reach out to the lost. And Gideons are part of a church. You know, we're not different. We're just members of a local church. Our camp president is right here. Russell Cross. Stand up, Russell. This is the man who's the president of the South Auckland Gideons. We're only a small group, half a dozen of us. And we pray every Saturday morning. Where do we pray? We pray at John and Carol's house, 8 o'clock on a Saturday. Stand up, John and Carol. So if anyone is keen to pray, contact John and Carol, 8 o'clock on a Saturday morning. Because <clears throat> we know nothing's going to happen unless we pray and ask God to move and use these scriptures. So glory to God, and it's a wonderful joy to be here. Thank you, Logan. It's an absolute privilege to be able to worship again together with you. Thank you. Thanks, brother. We have gathered here this morning to worship the one true living God, and so as we come into his presence, I'd like to invite you to stand with me if you're able. God himself addresses his people and calls them to worship with the words of Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. 
It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. And all the people said, let's pray. Father in heaven, indeed you are our God. And you have called us to be your people, not just called us, but you have made us your people in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have cleansed us of sin. You have welcomed us in him. And so we gather here this morning because you are worthy of all praise. Because you are great. You are glorious. You are our father in heaven. And so we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would accept our offerings as a sweet-smelling aroma, that in the blood of Christ, you would wash all that we do, that it would be presentable before you, and that you would bless us with your own presence, that you would smile upon us, that we might find great delight in our God and King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let us worship God with the words of Father in heaven. And then I'll ask you to remain standing. today of confessing our faith together using the Westminster Larger Catechism. And we're going to be using question 73, which is actually the wrong one, but we can just use it anyway because it's all still good to us. <laughs> question 73, I'll ask the question and we'll answer it together. Which is the eighth commandment? The eighth commandment is thou shalt not steal. Fantastic. Please be seated. <laughs> 
I think that's the shorter catechism rather than the larger. That's all right. Good reminder for us not to steal when we go home today. Well, brothers and sisters, we're going to turn to God's Word together. And so if you have your scriptures with you, we're turning through to Psalm 111. Good morning. We're turning to Psalm 111 this morning, which is on page 477 in the Church Bible, if you're using that one. Entitled here, Great are the Lord's Works. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright and the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thanks, brother. Well, let us stand and sing this to this God who is... The King of Kings and Lord of Lords with the words of King of Kings, Majesty, let's stand together.
please be seated. Well, we have a double portion of blessing today as we have the delight of welcoming the Fox family into membership and also baptizing their children. So as I say, a, a double portion of blessing today as we take part in that and also witness that. Um, the session did examine Jake and Jess and spoke with them about their own stories of faith and how the Lord's been at work in their lives and talked to them about their understanding of baptism and their understanding of the covenant and were absolutely delighted to approve them for membership and do that visibly before you today. However, before we get into it, it's good for us to consider what it is we're about to witness, what it is that Jake and Jess and their family are about to enter into. You see, the Fox family are being welcomed not just into a group, a society, but they're being welcomed visibly and publicly into the very covenantal community of God. They're being welcomed into God's family. And they're receiving all of the benefits that go with that, all of the privileges and all of the responsibilities. And, and we're reminded that God, from the very beginning, has been a covenantal God. He is a God who has made covenants with his people from Adam to Abraham and his children to Moses and Israel to King David and his children and establishing all of those covenants in the Lord Jesus Christ himself and extending those to his people and to the generations after them. You see, God is a God of covenantal families. Throughout the scriptures, the refrain of the scriptures is to you and your offspring is the promise. And we have the joy of witnessing that. You see, ultimately, the, the story of the Bible is the story of a covenant-making God keeping his covenant with his people. He is the God who never fails to keep his promises, never fails to keep his word. In the Old Testament, we understand that the sign of entrance into the covenant was circumcision. However, with the coming of Christ, a bloody sign was no longer needed because blood had been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus Christ himself changed it from circumcision to baptism to signify that we need to be washed by his blood in order to be made clean. And so, just like throughout all the ages, the covenantal children of God are welcomed. And they are given the sign of the covenant, and they're embraced as the people of God. And they're ministered to and encouraged and built up in their fear and love of the Lord. The covenantal rules for membership have never changed. And nowhere in the scriptures do you see them being changed. And so we continue to do what God's people have always done, like Jesus, to welcome the little children and bless them with the covenantal blessing of God. However, this is not just a day for the Fox family. And it's important for us all to recognize that. You see, baptism is not a one-use thing. It's not, it's not that you do your baptism and then you're done and you can forget about it from now on because, you know, I'm over that hurdle. 
we're told in our confessions to make use of our baptism. You might say, well, how do I use my baptism? That was a long time ago. What do I do with it? Well, to make use of your baptism is to, is to lay hold of it by faith and enter into all of the privileges of it. It's at moments like this, as you witness the baptism of someone else, it is to look at that and to repent of your sin and to recognize that we need ongoing repentance to remember the faithfulness of your God who gave you baptism and to see it as a remembrance of God's favor, his mercy upon you, his love bestowed upon you in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so even though you may not be being baptized today, you can enter again into the blessing of what you've received and rejoice in that for yourself. Now, what I'd like to do before I invite the Fox family up is to invite all the children to the front, because instead of doing a children's talk, I thought they can just come up and enjoy the front row seat. So if there's any children who want to come to the front, come to the front now, that would be fantastic. Wonderful. Oh, it's a bit hard looking over the adults, say eh? they're all a bit tall, especially in this church. I used to feel tall in my old churches, then I came here. Well, it is a blessing. Fox family, do you want to come up? So just so everyone knows what we're doing today is welcoming Jake and Jess by profession of faith, and then their children are receiving baptism as well. Come on, just here's one. Well, Jake and Jess, we start with you. Uh, in accordance with Romans 10, verse 9 to 10, which says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I invite you to confess, not just before God, but before these people, of what it is you believe by responding to these following five questions one at a time. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving the wrath of God and without hope except in His sovereign mercy? Do you repent of your sins and your sinfulness and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners, loving and trusting Him alone as the one who saves you from your sins and provides you with His perfect righteousness? Do you believe that the Bible is the complete Word of God, perfectly revealing Christ, His redemption, and all things necessary for His people? Do you promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit, to strive with all your might to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you promise to give yourself wholeheartedly to the church of Christ, to submit yourself to its authority and discipline, and to exercise your gifts for its purity, peace, and praise? 
God declares in his word, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Jake and Jess, baptism is a sign of five blessed realities. That river and Elisa and Esme need to be washed by the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That they need the promise of salvation that comes to them in the covenant of grace. That they need to come to believe and put faith in the reality of what is declared in this promise. That to them is offered graces and blessings because they are born into a covenantal family of God. And that they are enfolded and welcomed into the covenantal family of God. That the church might pray for them, care for them, and love them. And so it's important for us to remember that all of this is based not upon our works, nor upon our goodness, but upon the mercy of God alone. And so I exhort you to faithfully carry forth what you promised to do today in the sight of God, recognizing that one day you will give an account for the way you have cared for his children. But I ask you to respond to the following four questions as we come to baptize your children. Do you acknowledge yours and your children's need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you wholeheartedly believe God's covenantal promise to be your God and the God of your children and therefore present them for baptism as a sign and seal that they belong to the covenant family of God? Do you promise in humble reliance upon the grace of God to strive by all means necessary to set before your children a godly example in life and in death, to pray with them and for them, to teach them the scriptures and to bring them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? We're almost done, kids. Do you promise to encourage your children as soon as they are able to comprehend the significance of this baptism, to profess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and become full members of the church, serving God faithfully in its fellowship? Amen. Congregation, would you stand, please? I have five questions for you because we roll the profession and baptism questions together. And then I'll ask you to respond together with the words that are on the screen. Do you promise to receive this family in Christ? Do you promise to love, encourage, and support them by teaching and living out the gospel? Do you promise to give them the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service? Do you promise to receive these children as covenantal children of the church of Christ, to surround them with Christian love and prayer? And do you promise to set an example before them of genuine Christian faith and virtue so that early in life they may lay hold of the promise they have received? People of God, what is your answer?
Amen. And may God grant you the ability to keep his wor your words. Please be seated. Well, before we baptize these three wee ones, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you are a God who makes covenants and who keeps them. And that you give us visible signs that we might see with our eyes and believe. And we pray that, Lord, as we now witness this baptism, that, Lord, though it is just water placed upon heads, that you by your Holy Spirit would cause it to bear fruit in your time. And that each and every one of these children in your day would come and claim the promises that they are receiving. Lord, we recognize that it will only bear fruit by the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. River Samuel Fox, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Elisa Grace Fox, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Esme Joy Fox, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'd like to deliver you a brief exhortation from Deuteronomy to make good upon your promises and words. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Amen. Can I invite the elders to come up and welcome them into membership, please?
you guys can grab a seat. We're going to stand and sing The Church is One Foundation, and you children can find your worksheets during that. Well, let's come before the Lord in a time of congregational prayer and lift up our needs and our burdens before him. Let's pray.
Now, before we come to the preaching of God's Word, we're going to stand and sing together, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And then after that, please remain standing and we'll dedicate the offering to the Lord. Let's stand and sing. Oh 
let's dedicate the offering to the Lord. Father in heaven, we think of the people of old in Sinai bringing their offerings forward and Moses having to tell them to stop giving because they had such generous hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the same generous hearts, that our hearts would overflow with gratitude for all you've done for us. For you have not redeemed us from Egypt, but you have redeemed us from the devil, from sin, and from this world. And you have made us a people, priests of our God. And we pray, God, as we bring these offerings to you today, that you would accept them as free will offerings, as gifts, cheerfully given. And Lord, if there are any of us that have struggled to give, we pray, would you overwhelm our hearts with your goodness? And Lord, help us to trust you, whether we have given much or little, and use this money to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're going to open up the Word of God together today and turn through to the letter of Hebrews. As, as we all know, we finished off Titus in my absence. I was sad to miss the ending of the book, but that's all right. We turn to Hebrews today. What I'm planning on doing is doing a short series working our way through the, the hall of faith, some people call it, Hebrews 11. We're going to do some character studies or maybe faith studies, we could say, and work our way through the different people in Hebrews 11. In order to introduce us to that, it's helpful for us to know what leads into it. In fact, it's actually vital to understand chapter 10 in order to understand chapter 11. Funnily enough, it was you know, written together. Makes sense, right? Um, but we're turning to Hebrews 10. We're going to look at verse 32 to 39, which is the third part of the section which runs from verse 19. So we'll pick up at 19 and read from there, but we'll consider from verse 32 in the sermon. This is God's word for us today. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, quoting Habakkuk, yet a little while... And the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. And as we come to consider it, let us pray. <clears throat> our Lord, our Father, we come before you as your children, hungry for the bread of life. We long to hear your voice. We long to hear of Jesus. We long to see him glorified. We long to hear from him. And you have told us in your word that when the Bible is preached, Christ speaks to his people. And so we ask that as a man preaches the word of God that Christ would deliver a message to the heart of every single one of us. That, Lord, our preacher would be forgotten, but the voice of Christ would ring in our ears as we go from here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever felt like giving up? Giving up on something big, small, I remember when I served as an unofficial assistant to a pastor in Narawahia, there's, there was this mountain that he loved walking up, which is called the Hecaramatas. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend avoiding it, unless you're really fit. Um, and he used to love walking up it, and he had just had a knee replacement, and he loved walking up it, and then he had a second knee replacement, and he still loved walking up it. And he was about 63 and was way fitter than me and made me feel really bad about myself. But he would go, let's go up, let's go up the mountain. We'd walk up the mountain and we'd pray at the top. 
because you could get to the top and outlook all of Narawahia. So we'd go up there and pray for the town. And I, I never forget the very first time I walked up there. He didn't prepare me at all. He was like, oh, we'll just go for a little walk up this mountain. It'll be fun. It'll be fun, he said. He was a lying. I didn't confront him about that, but I'm fairly sure he was. It was not fun. I got, I got like a third of the way up, only to discover when I hit the third flight of stairs that he informed me basically the rest of the way is stairs. 3,300 of them. Is it 3,300 stairs? You don't understand the impact of 3,300 stairs until you're a third of the way up them. I got a third of the way up them and I thought to myself, I think I might actually die. I might never make it down from this mountain. And then I turned around and looked at the pastor who was just wandering all the way up the top, not a problem whatsoever. And I thought to myself, well, I can't be embarrassed by a 63-year-old. So I carried on. I got half of the way up. Now I really felt like giving up. And I just, I wanted to hand in the towel and go home. He wouldn't let me. He made me go the whole way. He graciously allowed me to have some breaks. But I can remember that feeling of dread. Like when I saw that sign that says, you're halfway. And I'm like, I thought I was nearly there. There's more. And he's like, oh, there's just one, one more big set of stairs. And then you walk around the corner, it's massive. And I'm just like, nah. I just want to turn around and go home again. I'm done. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like that in your Christian life? It's a far more serious thing, isn't it, when it's in your Christian life? Yeah, and there's many causes for it. It can be uh, opposition from loved ones or friends. Uh, people at your workplace, you know, you try and try and live out the gospel in your workplace and all of a sudden no one sits with you at the lunch table. No one wants to talk to you. Uh, people begin to make fun of you. It's happened to me. I, I quit a job and shifted to another job. And I, you know, in the last job, I hadn't really acted like a Christian because I was too ashamed. And so when I started the new job, I thought, well, right out of the gates, I'm going to act like a believer and last about a week in, people were putting up signs on walls to ridicule me in my workplace. And, and I can just remember thinking, is this really worth it? I, everyone hates me. I'm the only Christian in this whole printing factory. Everyone hates me. Why, why am I bothering? You know, maybe it's doubts. You know, you hear a clever atheistic argument and you think to yourself, well, it actually kind of makes sense. And, you know, all the Muslims, they think they're right. And all the Buddhists think they're right. And after all, what if Moses just made it up? And, and you start doubting and you start thinking about giving up and it's just too hard to keep on keeping on. You know, there's sickness and there's sorrow. And, and I'm a Christian, but it doesn't get better. And I seem to be sicker than all my non-Christian friends. And they all get fancy cars and I'm still driving a 1987 Honda Accord. Why is it that my life's horrible and all my unbelieving friends have great lives? Is it really worth it? Why should I bother carrying on? Or maybe you've come from an unbelieving family and your unbelieving family have basically just rejected you. You know, you've been taken out of the inheritance. They've said you're no longer a part of this home. You're no longer a part of our family. We've cut you from the world. We never want to speak to you again. You're an outcast from this community. You're not even welcomed in our town. If you come anywhere near this town, we will chase you out of town and we will beat you. Okay, maybe you haven't faced that, but that's what the Hebrews faced. Welcome to the world of the Hebrews. This letter was written somewhere in the mid-60s. 
just prior to the temple being destroyed. And so at this time, the Christians were still primarily seen by most people as Jews. And so they still tended to associate and hang out with the Jews. They would still go to synagogues. They would still have family and friends around them. But what quickly happened, especially in the sort of 50s and 60s, was the Jews really began to dislike the Christians. And it began to be seen not just as a little bit of an odd sect, but as a heresy, as a problem that needs to be eliminated. So they begin casting them out. And so if you're a Jew and you become a Christian and you're running a blacksmith, all of a sudden, no one comes to your shop anymore. And you go bust. And you've got no money. And you're no longer welcome to your family's house. You are removed, like Paul, removed from your inheritance. Paul was cut off from his family completely. That's that's the context around this letter. And the the writer to the Hebrews writes to them, and he's writing to them from beginning to end in order to spur them on. You see, they're tempted to turn back to the temple. They're tempted to turn back to, to Judaism because it's easier. Because at this stage, the temple and Jerusalem haven't been destroyed. So they've got peace. They have religious freedom. And so they think to themselves, well, back at the temple, we had sacrifices, everything was pretty good, we we were respected, we got special privileges in the Roman Empire, now we're just cast out and no one cares about us. Why do we bother? Let's just go home. Let's just go back home again. And so the writer to the Hebrews, he writes to them and he tells them that Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the people in the wilderness who forsake, forsook their God. That Jesus is greater than the temple. He's greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than David. Jesus is greater than anything in the Old Testament put together. Jesus is the great reward of our souls. And so as he argues that, we, we get our way to chapter, to chapter 10, and, and the writer seeks to bring this really strong exhortation. And so in verse 19 to 25, he delivers what we call the indicative. He delivers a bunch of gospel truth statements. And so you'll see there, if you just briefly look, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The curtain's been opened up. Verse 21, we have a great high priest. 22, we've got a full assurance of faith. We have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We've been made clean with pure order. And then he brings the exhortation in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession. Don't give up, but spur one another on. Don't neglect meeting together because that's just going to make it harder but rather build one another up and pursue the Lord together. And then he brings two types of exhortations or encouragements. He brings a negative warning, and then he brings a positive encouragement. So firstly, we won't deal with this one, but in verse 26 through 31, he brings that that section, which is kind of really scary to read, isn't it? 
It's kind of a pretty intimidating, especially when he says that in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has, was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of God? It is a fearful thing to hand, fall into the hands of a living God. What's he saying? Don't turn back because if you forsake what you've claimed to be, you will fall under the terror of God's judgment. And it is a terrifying thing to fall under God's judgment. Because not only are you under God's judgment, but you're doing so after receiving visibly all of the benefits it's like when a covenantal child walks away from the faith. They've received all of the benefits of the blessings of a covenant. And they say, I want nothing to do with this. And they turn their back on it and they walk away from it. And they are in a worse state than the unbeliever who has never known anything. And so he brings this very harsh warning and threat. But then, like a good teacher... He follows it up with a glorious encouragement. And I want, I, want to sh I, want to, I want you to see three things. I want us to look at three things. The, the writer to the Hebrews is going to remind us of three things that we need to remember if we are going to keep on keeping on. If we are going to endure to the end, there are three things to remember that will help us immensely. Firstly, we must remember the former days. The writer says in verse 32, recall or bring to mind the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. It says, call, call to mind what it used to be like, what you've been through. Remember the old days. Now, we know that um, an obsession with nostalgia is not a good thing, but that's not what he's encouraging us to do. He's, he's pointing them back to a quite a specific period of time, just after their enlightenment. It's that period in the book of Acts, around about Acts 8 through 12, where we run into things like the martyrdom of Stephen, the beheading of James, and the outbreak of persecution by the Apostle Paul, or by Saul at the time, upon the church. When the church was greatly under trial. And he points them back to that period and says, don't forget what happened just after you were saved. You endured a great struggle with immense sufferings. And then he lists those sufferings, doesn't he? You were publicly exposed, reproached, and afflicted. The word order is actually reproach, affliction, and publicly exposed. And I think what the author is trying to say is not so much you were publicly exposed through these things, but rather, first, they ridiculed you. I mean, you can imagine, right? I mean, this is written primarily to Jews. You can, you can imagine the Jew sitting in his home and going, actually, did you know Jesus is Yahweh? Jews would say, are you out of your mind? You must be insane. The Lord our God is one. There's no way Jesus can be God. And they would ridicule them and make fun of them. And, 
And, you know, after ridiculing them, the people wouldn't return. The people would stand strong. So what did they do then? They beat them. They flogged them. They harassed them. They pursued them. They murdered them. They tortured them. And so they endured all sorts of suffering and pain. But that not being enough, on top of that, they publicly exposed them. Meaning they put them on show for everyone to join together as a spectacle. The the word in the Greek is where we derive the word theatrics. They made a show out of them, a theatrical performance out of them. Now, you, you might be tempted to think to yourself at this point, um, how is it an encouragement to remind someone of the last time they suffered? It doesn't make much sense, right? Oh, you're suffering? Well, remember how much worse it was last time. It's like, that's the worst pastoral counseling advice, right? You go and visit someone who's sick and you say to them, well, you know, it could be worse. You could have cancer and be dying, you know. Like, you would have a hernia if I said that to you, right? (laughs) Bad pun. Um, But why does he do that? Well, he does that because the importance is not so much what they endured, but what they did at that time when they endured the suffering. You see, they endured these severe trials, these immense struggles, but then the writer goes on to say in verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison. And before that, sometimes being partners with those so treated, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. See, it's not so much, hey, remember that you got persecuted last time. It's remember what you did last time. Last time you suffered probably far worse things than you're enduring right now. And what you did is you partnered. The word is like having fellowship with or counting yourself with someone. You partnered with those in prison. In other words, they went to them and ministered to them. They showed sympathy to them. That word for compassion is sympathy. We have a sympathetic high priest. It's that same word. Now, you might think, well, that's fine. People visit people in prison. It's not that special. Except what happens if you visit a person in prison who's hated by everybody in town? You're counted with them, right? You're now one of them. And so you expose yourself to the very same treatment. And then, and this is just mind-blowing, isn't it? They joyfully... They joyfully watch their property get plundered. I mean, don't you hate it when someone steals your stuff? I can remember vividly, I can remember the disdain and the just unbelief in my children when they were about this big in Huntley. We had just moved to Huntley, probably the roughest part of New Zealand at the time. In fact, the newspaper called it the roughest part, and we were on the roughest street and, and, you know, my, my three little children were playing outside. We were on a corner section. And one of them left a whole bunch of toys out just by the fence. And the kid came over and picked them up. And they said, what are you doing? And he said, no, mine walked off. And I can just remember this 
just unbelief. Of, I can't believe someone just stole my stuff. They actually just took it. They just could not believe that this just took place. I mean, no one likes getting something burgled, right? I was speaking to a pastoral friend in Timaru who in the last 14 years has been burgled five times. Had his house stripped five times in 14 years. Brutal. They rejoiced in watching their houses get plundered. Now, you might ask yourself, what does it mean for a house to get plundered? I know it seems obvious. What they're referring to is a particular practice whereby basically the local authorities would say, you can plunder that guy. It's totally fine. He's a scumbag anyway. Go and plunder him. Anything not worth taking, burn it. So it wasn't like, hey, we came and took your silver and gold. It was, we've taken all of your valuables and we've just dumped the rest and burnt it in a massive pile and you have nothing but a shell. And they rejoiced. How can you rejoice in that? Because they knew that it's just stuff and that they have an eternal possession which far outstrips in glory everything in this life. Because at the end of the day, my car, my house, my TV, my computer, my whatever is precious to you means absolutely nothing when you're six feet under the ground. And in a hundred years, no one is even going to remember you except for maybe, if you're lucky, a great-grandchild. No one's going to care you even existed. Sorry. None of us are cool enough to get written in history books. But all of us in Christ are welcome to an eternal, unfading glory that will never rust. Remember Jesus says, build yourself treasures where thieves cannot break in and steal. Brothers and sisters, we're so tempted to focus upon the seen things right in front of us, aren't we? We're so tempted to give our lives to the stuff of this world. And it counts for nothing. It's empty. It's hollow. Yes, we're given the joys of creation to enjoy while we're in this life. But in the great scheme of things, compared to the glory of the face of Christ, it's nothing. So remember where you've been. And we can all do this, can't we? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you can look back to three minutes ago. You can look back to the day of your salvation and remember how the Lord worked in your life. And if you've been a Christian for... 80 years, can't you look backwards in your life and see the hand of the Lord and the way you've endured? And why is that so important? Because when you're halfway up the Hakaramatas and you turn around and look at all the stairs on the way back down, it would be a real shame to turn around. And when you're three quarters of the way there and you turn around and look back down, why would I give up? I've been through all this already. You've already endured this long, brothers and sisters. Why would you throw in the towel and exchange an eternal treasure for the judgment of God. So look backwards in order to go forwards. But then he says, secondly, remember, remember, not just, not just what lies behind us, but remember the great reward. He says in verse 35 and 36, therefore, do not Throw away your confidence that has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that 
when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You know, if you only ever look backwards, eventually you tend to go stationary. You ever meet people like that who live in the past? That, you know, they live in some era of greatness. You meet these people in church sometimes, and the only thing they ever talk about is what we used to do 50 years ago. You know, 50 years ago we used to, and 50 years ago we did this, and 100 years, probably not 100 years ago, but you know what I mean. Or they look back to previous generations. Back in the Puritan days, they used to. If we could only get back then, then all of our problems would be solved. A pastor said to me the other day, did you know back in the days... Men like Martin Lloyd-Jones used to preach 12 times a week. 12 times a week, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be back there again? It's easy, isn't it, to always be looking backwards and thinking, oh, for the good old days. But God doesn't want us to fixate upon the past. He wants us to remember the past, but then remember what lies ahead and pursue it. And so he says, the great reward and the great promise. What is he talking about? Well, the great reward is probably a reference to the rewards for faithfulness that Christ talks about. You remember in the parable of the talents, those that are faithful with 10 talents receive 10 cities. Those with five talents receive five cities. There is a reward of eternal uh, payment that comes not for Uh, earning our salvation, but as a reward of faithfulness. We're saved by faith alone, but by faith we work, and there is a form of rewarding of that at the end of our lives. We don't know all the details. It's fascinating. 120 years ago, everyone talked about this. In the last 120 years, it's almost vanished. Almost no author writes about heavenly rewards anymore. I think there's a fear of talking about it, that people might accuse us of thinking about works-based salvation. But it's a motive. Remember Jesus? Blessed are you when they persecute you. Why? Because you have riches in heaven. When I was a little kid, I went to a sports day once. We had this uh, music teacher, and he was just everything a music teacher is. He was cool, he was hip, and used to hang out with all the kids. And And one of the kids, because we used to have a sports uniform and it had a little shield on it and the shield had a cross on it. And so we're we're at this country school with all these other country schools doing an athletic day. And and one of them was just standing there ridiculing us for the cross on our shirt. And I was so upset. And and I spoke to this music teacher and he said to me, Logan, um, every single time you hear someone ridicule yourself, just hear a coin dropping in a coffer. I was like, what? He's like, well, Jesus says that blessed are you when they ridicule you because you have riches in heaven. Let it motivate you to face and enjoy everything because this is not your home. And we can do that, can't we? We get so hurt here and and it's right to be hurt. And it's horrible being persecuted. No one enjoys it. But when we remember what waits before us, it's a lot easier, isn't it? And he says the promise, that you might receive the promise, endure the will of God, do the will of God, which is enduring, so that you might receive the promise. What's the promise? It's eternal life, right? It's the removal of sin. It's the removal of wickedness. It's the removal of judgment. Yes, it's all of those things. 
It's removal of sickness. The removal of the curse upon the world. It's perfect fellowship with one another. Perfect joy. Perfect love. Perfect fellowship. Never fearing. No more darkness. No more sea. But more than that, isn't it? It's far more than that. It's perfect communion with our God. Perfect fellowship with the Father. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we will see face to face. And and the Holy Spirit, without sin hindering our relationship whatsoever, the Holy Spirit will work within us to draw us to God, that we will see Him as He truly is. That's the promise. That's what you promised, brothers and sisters. Why would you not endure for that? I mean, don't you want to see God? Don't you want to see Jesus Christ with a smile upon his face and not with the wrath of the Lamb upon his face? Don't you want to dwell with him forever? Rejoicing in his excellencies, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his wisdom, his power? Don't you want to see the hands and the feet and the scars and the side and the crown of thorns that left scars upon his brow? Don't you want to see the saints of old and speak to the thief upon the cross? Don't you want to figure out who the writer to the Hebrews is? Oh man, I want to know who wrote this book. It lies before you as a promise written in the word of God, sure and fixed in heaven, offered freely for you. Press on to obtain it. And our great example is Jesus, isn't it? You see, this, this section, you've got to ignore chapter divisions, especially in the book of Hebrews. Out of any of the books of the Bible, ignore the chapter divisions in Hebrews because this section is going to segue straight into chapter 11, which is an example of everything he's talking about in our section today. And he's going to finish in chapter 12 with these words in verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, pay attention to this, concentrate, look at the words, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you understand the logic here? Jesus is approaching the cross all through his life. He's read Isaiah 53. He knows what's coming. He's wept in the veil of tears. He is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken and smitten and afflicted by men. And the thing that motivates him, the writer to the Hebrews says, is the joy that is set before him. He looks beyond the cross, beyond the grave, beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension to the throne room of God where he will sit. And he looks to eternity where he will be gathered with a great host of captives, with men from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, gathered before him as one people in perfect unison. 
He looks at you in the future as his reward for his faithfulness. And he endures all things that he might obtain the promise of God. God promised to him, my son, faithfully execute your office and I will give you the nations. I will give you the people and I will restore all glory and praise and honor to you before all peoples. And is a day not coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? It's coming. And Jesus sees that and says, I will endure the cross. I will despise its shame. I will walk through all of it for the sake of obtaining the crown of glory. And then you look into heaven in Revelation, and what do you see? You see 24 elders gathered around their throne. And as they're seated around the throne, what's upon their heads? Crowns. Their prize for their faithfulness. And you know what they do with it? They proudly strut around like peacocks and say, oh, look at my crown. No, they take it off and they cast it down before God. And they say, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. That's our destiny, brothers and sisters in Christ. Pursue the crown of glory that you may lay it down at the King of glory's feet. But there's one more, which is much quicker. You see, we must, we must look backwards and, and remember the former days, and we must look forwards and remember the great reward and the great promise, but we must also remember, and this is absolutely pivotal, we must remember who we are. We must remember who we are. You know, psychologists know this. Pagan psychologists, they know this. If they're, if they're dealing with, with uh, people with addictions and things like that, they, they will tell you that you know when a person is fully broken in addiction when they no longer think of themselves like a smoker or a drinker or a drug user. A person has not broken the addiction to food until they no longer feel and think of them as a fat person. That's the way it works. Well, the reality is they got their logic from the Bible, whether they realize that or not. Because the Bible said it first. Have a look at the last verse in our section, verse 39. But we... This, this is striking, isn't it? He's just spent all of this time saying to them, you need to endure. I know you're facing hardships. This is what you need to do. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Do this. Endure this. Look at the glory of Christ. Pursue the reward. You need to do this. And then he says, but, but we are not of those who shrink back. And he includes himself. And he speaks corporately of all believers. He says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's that warning in verse 26 to 31. But we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It says, don't forget who you are, my dear readers. You are believers. 
And when he says, remember that we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who are of faith, who preserve their souls. He's not saying, look at yourself and remember how fantastic you are. Because we all know that doesn't work, right? The more we look at ourselves, the more twisted up in knots we get. His point is, look at yourself as you are in Christ. Remember who you are in Christ. Remember the great confession you've made, as he says at the beginning of the section. Draw near to the one who has opened the way. It, it's like Martin Luther. I've just begun reading this book called The History of the Reformation by a French guy whose name I'm not going to say for the sake of our French sister who will be offended by my pronunciation. Um, but the, in this book, he talks about Luther. And, and Luther, prior to the big discovery which initiates the Reformation, he's wrestling with the monks under the load of sin. And he's just castigating himself. Like we're talking weeks without food and water because of his sin, trying to make himself right with God. And there's this man who becomes his friend who's called John Stalpitz. And John Stalpitz comes to him and he says to him, Luther, stop looking at yourself. Look at the wounds of Christ. He comes back to him about a, a week later. And there's Luther on his mat on the ground, just wailing and weeping over himself. And Stalpitz says, Luther, stop looking at yourself. Look at the wounds of Christ where the grace and mercy of God is found. Luther, remember who you are in Christ. In Christ. You are loved. In Christ, you were elected in love. In Christ, you were redeemed. In Christ, you were washed. In Christ, you will be sanctified. In Christ, you will be brought home. In Christ, you will reign with Him. In Christ, you were adopted as sons and daughters. In Christ, you have received every spiritual blessing from God. Don't look at yourself. Look at Christ, he says. It's the greatest motivation. Why would I turn to sin and away from God? And why would I give up when I'm in Christ? When I'm united to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the great God, man. Why would you? It doesn't make any sense, does it? So let me ask you again. Are you tempted to give up? What pressures do you feel, brothers and sisters, from without and within? Don't give up. He is worthy of every enduring effort you can yield. And by faith, let me urge you, brothers and sisters, by faith, for the joy set before you, endure all things for his sake. And may God grant us, for his glory and his praise, 
to do so. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to yourself and you have united us to Christ. And so we pray that in the same way that you have done everything for our salvation, that you would do everything to bring us safely home. Lord, work in us by your Spirit that we might set our eyes in heavenly places, not on earthly places. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand and sing, brothers and sisters, in response to God's word and praise to him. By faith we see the hand of God. Let's stand.
Brothers and sisters, as you go out into this blessed Lord's day, do so with the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ upon you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Glory to God in the highest.
Amen.